Mark Twain once said, whoever has lived long enough to find out what life is knows how deep a debt of gratitude we owe to Adam, the first great benefactor of our race. He brought death into the world. At first glance, it may seem like the Old Testament and Gospel readings this morning lend support to his claim. After all, they seem to show instances where faithfulness is rewarded with hostility and good with evil. St. Paul, however, takes a rather different view. As he sees it, the great irony of the world's hostility to the good news of God is that the message concerns God's actions to break down every form of hostility, to bring reconciliation and peace in Christ. This is at the heart of the passage we just heard from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, though you would not be alone if that reading left you scratching your head. The language is beautiful, but it's easy to get lost in his crescendo of praise. And if you think it's hard in English, it's actually worse than you think. The whole passage, all 12 verses, is actually one long run-on sentence. But it's a glorious sentence. An exuberant doxology, one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. And what it shows us is that we were made to offer our lives in praise to God, and that heartfelt praise is grounded in gratitude for what God has done and what He is doing in and through Christ, the second Adam. So, first, Paul speaks of what God has done that is worthy of praise. And the claim is pretty astounding. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then in the verses that follow, he pours out praise to God as he rehearses God's saving acts in the life of Jesus. What may not be immediately apparent is that as he tells the story of Jesus, he is retelling the story of Israel. And he's doing so in terms of the saving acts of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Listen to how this passage mirrors the story of Israel. God chose the people of Israel in Abraham and adopted them as his children. In order to fulfill their calling, he redeemed them from bondage in Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb. He did this so that they might be holy and blameless before him, a light to the nations, Finally, he led them to their inheritance in the promised land. What Paul sees to his amazement and delight is the story of Israel in the life of Jesus. God the Father chose his people in Christ and adopted them as his children and joint heirs with Christ. God the Son, the true Paschal Lamb, redeemed his people from the greater bondage to sin through his blood. God the Holy Spirit empowers us to live lives that are holy and blameless before him. And the Spirit's presence working in us is the down payment of our ultimate inheritance, the fullness of God's presence. This is a splendid vision, but you may have noticed that we do not play a very active role in this story. It reminds me of the child who's excited about the upcoming school play only to find out that he has been selected for the role of a tree or a rock. In this play, God is the principal actor, and we receive all the blessings, 
not because of our wonderful lives, but as a free gift. As Paul will say later, by grace you have been saved. And although we do eventually have a very active role to play, we'll hopefully get there by the end of the sermon, Paul makes it abundantly clear that the spiritual blessings he has in mind here, the great acts of redemptive history, are gifts for those in Christ. He uses variations on that phrase, in Christ, about 40 times in the short letter. And even in our short passage, he tells us that we have election in Christ, adoption in Christ, redemption and forgiveness in Christ. We receive an inheritance in Christ, and in Christ we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If the message hasn't gotten through yet, the Christian life just is life in Christ. One writer said it well, our entire blessedness is bound up in our being bound to Christ. So Paul gives us grounds of praise by retelling the story of Israel as our story in Christ. But as he tells the story, he's overcome with excitement as he looks forward to its climax. You see, this story hasn't been finished. We're living in the middle of it. So the climax is not what God has already done, astounding as that may be, but what God is actively doing, what Paul calls the mystery of his will, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. That is, in some ways, an unfortunate translation because it makes God's ultimate plan seem very mysterious. But in the New Testament, the word mystery does not mean something that we can't get our minds around. It means something that was hidden until God revealed it. In other words, his plan for the fullness of time is no longer a mystery. It has been made known to us. And Paul tells us what it is. To gather up all things, you guessed it, in Christ. Paul uses the same word in Romans to describe how the entire law is gathered up or summed up in the love command to love your neighbor as yourself. In the same way, all creation is being summed up or brought into unity in Christ. And this is not some vague abstraction. It is what God is actively doing through the Spirit in concrete individuals and communities. This is why Paul gets so excited about how the gospel is breaking down, to just use one example, the division between Jews and Gentiles. A little later in the letter, he says, God has made Jew and Gentile both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The reconciliation of Jew and Gentile in Christ is not only an example of God's plan to gather up all things in Christ, it's also a foretaste and a first installment of what God promises eventually to do throughout all creation. And while we await this glorious prospect, the church is supposed to be a living example of this unity in Christ, as Paul goes on to say, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known 
to the world. It may be worth asking ourselves how our lives, individually and corporately, might more clearly bear the family resemblance and thus make known the manifold wisdom of God. Well, what God has done and what God is doing, both for us and for all creation, lead naturally to what God expects of us, and it is, quite simply, praise. You'll notice that the passage begins with two blessings. Paul blesses God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and God blesses us, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. But notice the difference. God blesses us by offering us gifts. We bless God by offering him praise. You remember I said that we will eventually get to our part in the story? Well, here it is. All the blessings which God has so richly bestowed on us are given so that we might live for the praise of his glory. What do you live for? I suspect many in our culture live for their work or their play, for honors or for success. Maybe they live for a retirement filled with plenty of R&R. But these are so many paths of disillusionment and disappointment. They may divert us for a time, but they can't ultimately fulfill our deepest yearning. We began with Twain, let's end with Seneca. He who receives a benefit with gratitude repays the first installment on his debt. Paul tells us that the Christian lives for the praise of God's glory. May it be so for us. Let us pray. Gracious Father, fill our hearts to overflowing with gratitude for what you have done and for what you are doing in and through Christ, so that we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory throughout all ages. Amen. Amen.